during this retreat, I've, as you are well aware of, I've been uh, emphasizing over and over again uh, an attitude of mind, which is an attitude to, of mindfulness and using wisdom to see things as they are. So this, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, the refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. Now these, we repeat them over and over uh, just to internalize them. At least the, it's important in any religious convention to, to not just keep it a on a kind of exoteric plane, but external. It, it becomes uh, sterile and has no spirit or life to it if religious convention is only left uh, as a kind of as a convention alone it has it has no vitality of its own in other words it's another convention and the spirit of any religion is your spirit it's not it doesn't have its own spirit it is a, a form in which you breathe life into the form. It's your spirit that fills out the convention, gives it life. So when we are expecting, uh, say, any religious convention to kind of zap us and, and inspire us and to fill us up with, with love and inspiration, then we're asking uh, it to do something it's not capable of doing. Because uh, we're we're really uh, talking to something that that ha that depends very much to be on the way we use it. It has no life force of its own. Though, like Theravada Buddhism, is can be just a merely kind of passive, spiritless, dead convention, where you go through the ceremonies and. Then you bow down, bang, 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 and then, uh, and then, then you, you, you have still a, a kind of, you have maybe a kind of belief that if you keep doing that, uh, that the spirit of Theravada will suddenly enter your soul. Well, that's a superstition, really. You're, you're taking something, a belief, you're, you're projecting onto a convention something. You're expecting it to do something for you. Uh, you still believe uh, the symbols, the forms, the conventions, the language, the beliefs, all have, some, have a power to, to, to do something to you, to enlighten you or liberate you or save you. So that is what we call a kind of exoterism, where religious conventions remain only as external things, conventions alone. So when religion uh, degenerates to that, then it, is, it becomes dreary and boring, and it's kept alive just by people's uh, uh, kind of belief that the use, using of it as a kind of maybe a tradition or cultural tradition. One can see that, say, in, in England, with the Church of England, so much of it is, is rather, it is without any spirit. 
I mean, there are people within the Church of England who have the spirit, but as a as a form in general, I think one when you ask English people what religion they what they, religion they've been raised with, they'll say, "Oh, I guess C of E." It's kind of we went to church on Easter or something like that, like Venerable Ambrose said. <laughs> so, anyway, it, it, it's kept, uh, kept uh, as a kind of cultural heritage, part of, of British culture, English culture, so it's, uh, it's kind of kept, uh, kept going uh, as a convention. But then people condemn it and complain about it, criticize it, because they say, it doesn't have any spirit, it's dreary. They make fun of it. In England, even the Church of England people make fun of the Church of England. In Thailand, a lot of the Buddhism in Thailand is the same way. Not, not because of Christianity or any other. It's just that religion easily becomes the established tradition and then people don't really internalize the conventions. It remains merely a thing you go through as a ceremony, external ceremony. But it doesn't reach your heart. It doesn't, your spirit is not in it. You do it because it's the proper thing to be doing or it's what's expected of you. But it's not something, it's not from real understanding and from a real inspiration. Now the word spirit is an important <coughs> word, isn't it? Because we have words like inspiration and aspiration and the spirits. We have expiration, desperation. <laughs> but this is all about the, the kind of the invisible force, the, the energy uh, of life, a spirit. And people, if you say a person has spirit, that means they somehow, they're, they're alive, they, they're aware, they have a brightness to them. When a person loses their spirit, they become dreary and dull. The light goes out of their eyes and they're just kind of going along like a, like a dead convention. They're still breathing and they still eat and sleep and so forth, but but the spirit is is no longer operating through the form. So it's a it's a dead kind of form. It just keeps going on on what's left of its karma. It doesn't it, it doesn't have any vitality to it. Superstition, we want, we want things from outside to come and save us. External forces or uh, a, a, a benevolent being from above or we, we're waiting and expecting something somewhere, hoping that we will be given something from above, from outside ourselves. So this tendency to always be looking externally, waiting for something, wanting something, longing for union, longing for fulfillment, and expecting somebody else to come and fulfill you. Waiting for Cinderella, waiting for Prince Charming, or the perfect match, the, the mate that was, 
the marriage that was meant to be arranged by God up in heaven, the, the perfect union where uh, the, the man and woman live happily ever after. This kind of, of longing for union, unity, oneness, happiness, harmony, and expecting that somebody else to do it for you or a convention uh, to come along and, and, and fulfill you or another person, or a teacher, or whatever. And when you don't, when it doesn't happen, then we become disappointed and uh, disillusioned with either the person, the people, or the, or the convention. People get interested in Buddhism, and they, they, and, and, but they also become disinterested in it when it doesn't give them what they want when it doesn't give you what you want, when it doesn't fulfill you the way you want it to. So then you, you get disillusioned with Buddhism, then you might go on to another one. Just like the, the kind of uh, Casanova of religion. Hoping the next one will be the right match, the perfect marriage arranged in heaven by God. But that, just that basic assumption and, and uh, attitude, of course, is wrong. I mean, we're never, we're never going to be fulfilled, we're always going to be left alone, and we're always going to be disillusioned and disappointed with everything, as long as that basic delusion is our point of operation, what we come from, what we, how we tend to approach life. So in meditation, we're, we're, we're having the courage to really look at that. Look at that, that very thing, that longing, that inner longing for union, uh, loneliness, and fear of being left alone, fear of death, fear of of the unknown is uh, wanting, you know, and that very fear is a driving force in, human, in the human heart in which we will try anything, uh, seek anything to, to have even a measure of some kind of fulfillment. So, I mean, like, like uh, alcohol has, a, has an effect on the mind in which we, we, we might not feel so that, that kind of gnawing ache or in the, in the guts, uh, that longing for union, uh, or the fear that we have in regards to being left alone in the dark in a mysterious universe, uh, alienated rather than united in one. Or we take drugs, and these things are, are kind of momentary escapes from that, that, um, that, fear. But that's the best they can do. Drugs can't fulfill you. And alcohol can't fulfill you. You end up feeling disillusioned, disappointed with that. And, and, and any other, any other, like, uh, not only are there alcoholics, the modern uh, term is workaholics. How many of you are addicted to work? as a kind of keeping busy doing things, 
as a way of, of not having to look, not having, just a way of smothering or uh, getting away from that gnawing feeling. In meditation, then, we're willing to look at it. We, we, need, we need to notice it rather than react to it, to really accept it. And by doing that, we have to put our spirit into it. We have to look, not, as a, not in, a, in, a, in a dead way, in a kind of perfunctory uh, kind of intellectualizing of it, but a real willingness, a wholehearted acceptance and willingness to, to bear that, to be with that, loneliness and fear. And the kind of patience to do that, uh, that it takes to be able to do that, is also, it's not a, a stupid patience, like, like a, a cow out in the meadow, but it is, it is a patience of the spirit. The spirit is, is encompassing and waiting and, and embracing. So it isn't a, 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 a resigned passivity, uh, but it is a very kind of balanced acceptance and receptivity to pain, to fear, to loneliness, to the fe feeling of alienation and separation. Now contemplating that, we, in the Buddha gave his Dharma teaching so that we would be able to mindfully, with wisdom, understand the predicament we all have, because we're all in the same predicament, every one of us. We all have the same problem. We've been born. <laughs> Notice that the, the people that were never born don't have this problem. But this is, a, this is the problem of being born as a human being. It's a human problem. And it's not, and it's, and it's, a, and all problems are solvable. Isn't it? If, if, it's, if it's insolvable, if one can't solve it, then it's no, not really a problem. It's just the way it is, so we have to accept it. But any problem has a solution. So, through mindfulness, we, we begin to uh, look at the way it is. We're not, we're not blaming this feeling on anyone. Uh, we're not uh, asking it to go away or to, to be anything other than what it is. But we can reflect on it. And we can understand that just the, the result of birth means that we are uh, we have this illusory experience of separation because we tend, we, we so easily identify with our separateness, the fact that I'm here and you're there, the subject-object experience through consciousness. So when I expect unity on the level of, of, uh, of the physical world, it doesn't work. 
you can't stay united with anything for very long. You can, you, you, it, because the nature of, of being born is that you really have to live within a separate form, a seemingly separate form for a lifetime. And so when we understand that, then we accept it. That's no longer a problem. Because then when you understand it, you, the, that problem is, is, disappears. It's been solved. Because we, we, don't, we no longer seek unity in, in the changing conditions that we're born into. We're no longer expecting the, the bodies and the emotions and the, and the mental conditions to ever, to ever be one with anything because their nature is to arise and cease. They're impermanent. So we chant, Sape, Sankara, Anicca. All conditions are impermanent. That's a way of reminding us of this truth. And, and therefore we don't expect we no longer expect these conditions to, to be satisfactory, to satisfy us, or to, to take away our loneliness, or to be fulfilled in some permanent way. That, that a condition, is, some, there's some condition just waiting somewhere around the corner, maybe, or behind the bush, or behind the door or somewhere, some condition is there uh, just waiting for me to come by and that will make me happy forevermore. But without getting cynical or bitter about it, we, with wise reflection we realize that's just not the way things are. That, uh, that is, uh, is not ever going to happen. We might have momentary uh, gratifications and highs and, and ecstasies through through uh, various conditioned experiences, but they change and they, they, they dissolve, and they die and disappear. And what comes together must separate. So with this reflection then we, we make no demand on the sensory world. We, we don't expect it to be anything other than what it is, and therefore there's no more problem about the sensory world in regards to uh, our, our self, our life. The illusion of being separate then is uh, from being born we have to live a seemingly separate existence as an individual being. So in meditation where and any kind of religious path is the is the aspiration toward unity or transcendence to where there's there's no longer where the the reality of of oneness and totality is is realized in, the, in which there's the sense that the, the old habits created around the, the body and conditions of mind are relinquished and abandoned. And then in that experience, in that realization, then there is no fear. There's fearlessness because there is right understanding. There's no longer 
uh, uh, no longer does does the the separation of our bodies, the seeming separateness of them, uh, is no longer an identity. So there's no longer the loneliness or the alienation or the anxiety that is caused from that delusion, that illusion of me being my body and my thoughts and feelings. Now the pattern, the basic pattern of religion is, is the pattern of the, of the conditions related relationship to the unconditioned or the mortal to the immortal. There's the, there's the, this, all that arises, all, all that, there's the born, the created, the originated. And this arises and ceases. And there is the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated. And without that, there would not be the created, the born, the originated. In other words, the born is always related to the unborn or the deathless. The death-bound, it relates to the deathless. The mortal to the immortal. The originated with the unoriginated. The created with, un with the uncreated. That's the pattern. And in the, and in the separate form of our human birth, we can witness to that pattern. This is what the Buddha, Buddhi is, the Buddha mind, the perfect intellect, the universal intellect, is, is what we can use to understand and realize this perfect relationship of the arising and ceasing of the conditioned in the unconditioned. Now the, the uh, in the Vedanta scriptures, the uh, buddhi is the, is the result of the union of Purusha with Prakriti, which is the, Purusha is the is the male, uh, or, or and Prakriti is the female, and there and they produce buddhi, which is inte uh, perfect uh, intelligence. So I mean, this this pattern uh, is is seen in in uh, in Christianity and in uh, and is really the foundation of all, uh, say, metaphysics. Uh, in, in, of any form of metaphysics, in Hindu or, or Christian, there is this, this, uh, this relationship of the male to the female producing the, the child. And the child, in this case, say on the spiritual plane of that marriage, say having been born as already as a human being, then this buddhi is, is our refuge. It's universal wisdom and pure intellect which we use to understand the way things are within the limitation of our human state, with our, with our own karmic patterns, with the seeming individual, uh, individuality and separateness as a result of birth, we, we, 
we have this opportunity by, uh, say, tuning in to this universal intelligence. Now, being in the form we're in, we, 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 when, we, when we connect to Buddhi or to Buddha, they, the Buddhist or the Buddha, uh, there's always been uh, a Buddha. From I mean, before Gotama the Buddha, there were unknown. No, there were there were 28 Buddhas, and before that, we, they don't they've given up trying to conceive of any before that. Uh, but the first Buddha or second Buddha, who knows what age they lived in in Atlantis or Lemuria. <laughs> Because uh, Gautama the Buddha lived 2,533 years ago, and that's, that's a long time in our terms, isn't it? That's a long time. We don't, when we think of India uh, 2,533 years ago, it's, uh, even the American Civil War to us is ancient history. <laughs> but the, uh, in fact, the Second World War for us for most of you is old, ancient history. But Buddha, uh, Gautama the Buddha, being born in, in the Sal Grove in Lumpini and, and getting enlightened under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgai and so forth, this, is, this, uh, this was such a powerful uh, experience in the, in the human karma that we're still talking about it to this day. I've been talking about nothing else for years. <laughs> now, Buddhas are, there there are 28 or so. Was, was, was Gautama the 28th or... He was the 28th, yes. <laughs> and Maitreya is the next one, supposed to be the next one. And they're already claimers for that position. <laughs> I don't know how many Maitreyas I've heard of in my... When I went to England 13 years ago, there was a, a Japanese monk living in Birmingham or someplace like that that said he was Maitreya. But everybody told me that before he was Maitreya, he was a lot better teacher. <laughs> After he became Maitreya, nobody could stand him. <laughs> he, he disappeared somewhere. I never heard of him for years. And you know, there's claimants for that. Well, then there was the uh, Benjamin Cream uh, predicament. That was, what, in 1984? In the London newspapers, they had these amazing advertisements, like a, a whole double page, you know, of, of a London newspaper, like the Telegraph or the Guardian, and they'd have have these uh, uh, the Lord Maitreya and uh, is coming and will announce his he he arrived in England on the 19th of July, 1977. It said, and he's living somewhere. Uh, he's hiding away somewhere and will announce himself on a certain day, which was what? Uh, 
He has a good memory. <laughs> June 21st and 1984. So, so this was, this was, uh, everybody, uh, of course, the, the British character tends to be uh, uh, kind of negative and cynical about these things, but these were, were very impressive advertisements. So it made you wonder, you know, that must cost a lot of money to, to rent all that space in a, in a London newspaper. Uh, and, uh, and then this, this man, Benjamin Cream, was going around Britain uh, talking about this. And I even received special uh, letters and, and all kinds of information on this. And, and, and they were really pushing it. So during that time, June 21st, we were all kind of waiting to see what would happen. And, and uh, <laughs> and then finally the, the information kept, we kept kind of saying, well, we found uh, Maitreya and he's somewhere in, uh, in uh, I think in, in uh, the other, the um, Brick Lane, which is a, a rather uh, grotty part of London. And uh, so then then uh, the day came, and uh, we were all waiting. And by this time, the British uh, had seemed to be completely disinterested in it, and they were having all these football games, and everybody, the television, the news, was all aimed at the, these football matches. And, no, and nobody was really very much interested in Matea's arrival. And so Benjamin Cream was really upset, and, and, uh, and then... Several people claim, several people in Brick Lane claim to be the Maitreya Buddha. <laughs> and so it was a great fizzle, and it was, and it was a laughing stock, and, and Benjamin Cream didn't show his face for years. I think he's back on the, on the warpath, but uh, if that's the right... <laughs> but this is how this... This uh, looking for the Maitreya uh, as the, the next Buddha or the Messiah, isn't it? Uh, of this, this Maitreya Buddha is a, is a combination of Jesus and Maitreya because they're making out that he is the, the, uh, the joyous, uh, uh, loving force in the universe and is a very attractive uh, symbol indeed, Maitreya Buddha. And, and the... Uh, and the uh, Messiah, or uh, the return of the Christ. So the mind starts thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if Maitreya Buddha would come, or, or Christ would come back and set everything right, because we've really made a mess of it here. And, and we really need somebody like that to straighten it out, because obviously the United Nations can't do it. <laughs> And uh, this was, and uh, we, we couldn't see any possible way of, of solving the world's problems except through some kind of miracle or the coming of these, of these future uh, saviors. So people's mind, many people's minds went out in, in hope that this would happen. And many people, of course, were disappointed on the 21st of June because it was uh, such a kind of 
pathetic uh, uh, experience where, where uh, these two Maitreyas were fighting over, <laughs> quarreling about who was the real one. And that's not very inspiring, is it? <laughs> They're not any better than we are. So... <laughs> Contemplating that, though, one, you know, even I could, even I thought, well, it'd be nice, it'd really be nice if, if Maitreya would come at this time. And that, in uh, 1984, in, in uh, England, people were quite uh, frightened because there were all these kind of rumors and possibilities for uh, war and, and the uh, peace movement people and, the, and, and all this were beginning to really uh, you know, there was so much pessimism and fear that uh, there was going to be some kind of nuclear war. And of course, Europe uh, is the most logical place for that to happen. At, that, at least that's what it seemed like at that, but back in 1984. So it would be nice if, if some savior would come along and save the day. And then I thought that this is very much the general uh, development, the uh, emotional development of most human beings, isn't it? Where we, we uh, make a mess of things and then we want mummy and daddy to come and straighten it out for us, save us, because we've got ourselves into a corner and we want somebody to come and save me. So we start crying, mummy or daddy, come and help me, save me. And this, this seemed to me to be a rather pathetic, uh, state of the human heart where we weren't willing to do the things to, in order to, to create the situations where the problems could be solved. We, when we made a mess, we still felt we wanted God to come and make it right for us. So in this way, say, the, there's still this exteriorization, this exoterism, in which we see something, some outer force has to come and clean up the mess. Uh, a, a macrocosmic celestial father or mother, or some savior, coming from outside, coming in to, to help us. Now the emphasis on Buddhist meditation then is giving up that expectation or that demand. It's like growing up, isn't it? We're emotionally willing to grow out of that demand and expectation. We, because we realize we can clean up our own mess. We have this ability to clean up the mess we've made of our lives, ourselves. We don't have to call in somebody else to do it. And so, when we realize this, then, we, then our spirit is in the form. Because we're no longer just a, a kind of a degenerate form, hoping that some, something will come along and, and, and uh, inspire me and give me a high, give me a buzz. But we actually can generate power and we can, we, that spirit 
is something that all of us have, but which we need to use, we need to trust, we need to develop that. Just in, say, in sitting posture. I mean, we can sit without any effort and just kind of uh, uh, fall over or collapse or slouch down. Or we can put the spirit into the form where we raise the body up. We, we fill the body out with, with our spirit, with our life force. We, we, bring, uh, we bring it to its fullness just, uh, just by willing it to be that way. We can, we can bring ourselves to do that. We can, we can investigate, we can look into the way things are. We can put our attention on to any object, onto any sensation. We can investigate it, we can contemplate this sensation. Say, with the Buddhist teachings, we do have help from outside, don't we? As we chant, the Buddha is our teacher, our helper. He's, he's, he helps us, he guides us. But it's not an external. We're not praying to some external Buddha, but using the teaching that he left by bringing it to life within our own body and mind. So that, that the, then the spirit is, we're breathing life, we're breathing our spirit into the form. And that is the Sangha, the the one who practices in the right way. Then the, then the Sangha, the tradition, has a spirit. That's what one felt with uh, Rung Po Cha in Thailand, that, that here was a monastery and a teacher. There was, there was a, a, a vital spirit, spiritual quality about the place. It wasn't just a, uh, an ordinary old monastery where people were just uh, doing, doing things out of habit and out of belief and superstition, but it, it, was a, it had a real spirit to it as a monastery because the monks were encouraged to use the teachings of the Buddha to investigate, to look into the Dhamma, to see the way it is. The biggest problem most of us face is with, with, is with doubt, isn't it? It's very difficult to... to uh, our minds are so conditioned with, with uh, thoughts, proliferating thoughts, that we... and we're so used to, to thinking and grasping these thoughts and believing these thoughts that we... That inevitably they take us to doubt and uncertainty. Just uh, how do we know anatta is true, no self, and 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 sabay uh, sankara and all conditions are impermanent and they're all unsatisfactory. How do we know that? How do we know that that anything I'm saying is true? Maybe I'm just deluded. Uh, maybe Buddhism isn't true. Maybe it's a false religion. 
or maybe the teacher is deluded. Could be. And, uh, and then there are various others, uh, uh, kind of Buddhist groups that say uh, Theravada is an inferior form. It doesn't take you to complete enlightenment because it's Hinayana. And then you start, that's yeah, probably, it might be true. And then, <laughs> then the Christians come along and say it's a satanic religion. They worship idols and so forth, and then, then all kinds of criticisms and comments are made in the mind uh, that still, when we're caught in our thoughts, then we tend to, uh, we'll always be the, what people say, what people, uh, what people in authority say, or what, what other people, even people without any authority say, affects our mind. And so we, we, we get caught in hesitation, doubt, uncertainty, insecurity. The self-doubt is, is really uh, a major leap in consciousness to, to get beyond the, the self-doubt. Am I ready? Can I do it? Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I've got so many problems and I'm, and the, the way we tend to perceive ourselves as being hopeless or inferior or, or incapable or, or uh, not ready or maybe, you know, it, we're just, it's impossible for me. It might be maybe Ajahn Sumato, but, but me, I'm, I don't think I can do it. These are self-doubts. So the doubt about oneself, about uh, the tradition, about the teacher, now, what I recommend in the monasteries is, because this happens a lot in, in monastic life, because monks and nuns go through various phases of inspiration and desperation. And then these doubts come into their minds, and then they, they hear about other things happening, or, uh, and, you know, there's a, uh, a lot of information about, and a lot of interesting things and new, new ideas, new, new religions, new groups. There's always this idea, Buddhism is an old religion. It, it would probably work for people in India 2,533 years ago. I mean, it was for that kind of mind. But we've evolved since then. And, uh, and Britain or America are different. I mean, there's certainly people have, you know, totally different than they were in India, so Buddha's religion probably well, is out of date, and then there's these new religions. Well, that seems sensible. To, I mean, certainly we see old things as being as as being uh, maybe appropriate for a certain time and place. But then they get old and they they wear out, and and therefore we need new ones. There's this tremendous emphasis in America about uh, making Buddhism into an American, American Buddhism. Uh, you hear that in the inquiring mind a lot about making America, making Buddhism American. We want American Buddhism. And in Britain, there's, there's that we want people with, we, I've heard so many people say, we want British Buddhism. 
and uh, this is this is uh, a common attitude when when uh, when you're taking uh, say a religion from an Asian country, uh, people want to to adapt it and make it into fit their own cultural standards, which seems sensible too, doesn't it? To if you're going to bring Buddhism to America, you want to make it reasonable and presentable and likable and popular and something that masses of Americans will, will like and something that doesn't, that we can feel at ease with because we don't feel at ease uh, doing things the way Asian people do things. We feel a bit tense and it makes us nervous to, to do those Asian customs. And uh, so we want to Americanize it and, and so it fits into what we feel comfortable with. But then, this also I, I challenge, this, this way of thinking, because uh, when Buddhi Buddhism has managed to survive uh, without the Americans for 2000... <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a kind of uh, fact that it, it has uh, a kind of force and a thrust to it uh, in, in its traditional form. When, it, when, the, when the traditional form is tampered with too much, I think it, it loses its power. It, it, it's, uh, it's, its strength uh, is weakened. Noticing uh, people's adaptations uh, of Buddhism in the West, uh, they, they're lacking something. Because the one thing, they, people tend to take what they want. We, we, we have a kind of conceit. Americans have a terrible conceit about we know what's good for us. And we don't want any of that Asian hocus-pocus because we, we are beyond that. We're better than that. So we'll, and we know what we need out of these. We just need vipassana, that's all. Uh, we, we, we want to practice vipassana. They do it in Zen, don't they? It's, we, we just want Zen, we don't want Buddhism, we don't want Buddha Dhamma, we want Zen. And I, in England you meet people who call themselves Zenists. You say, we're not Buddhists, we're Zenists. And, and people here say we're sitters. This is the new religion. <laughs> Now tradition with all its seemingly, because traditions do get, can, as I've said before, become uh, without any spirit. They can be just perfunctory ways of doing things. But they can also, we can breathe the life into a tradition. And this is what uh, we're, we're doing within, within this tradition. We're trying to do this. We're, we're putting ourselves into the form. We're not trying to to bend the form and make it what what I want, because because I I feel that the, in many ways when when I first uh, ordained as a monk, there were many things within the tradition that I didn't particularly like uh, in Thailand, 
and uh, I was quite critical of a lot of things when I, at Ajahn Chah's monastery, even though I thought it's a, it's a really good place, but I could, I know ways of making it better. Because, uh, uh, and so I, I, I unfortunately was wise enough not to mention this to anybody. <laughs> I didn't dare say that to uh, Ajahn Chah. But, but thoughts like that did occur to me that I, I really knew how to make this place better. Uh, but over the years, by learning to fit within and stay within the limits of the tradition, I began to see uh, what conceit really is and, and how, my, how, how really I never thought of myself in, in that term as being a conceited person. But, but when, I had, when I was learning to live within the restraints of a traditional form, uh, my conceit really became apparent because there was a lot of resistance, a lot of stubbornness I could see uh, and, and just being born in this country and educated here, there, there's, a, uh, there's, there's a lot we just take for granted that we somehow know better than anyone else. And so this, is, this conceit is, is, uh, can, could be witnessed to, could be recognized for what it, for what it was. Now, when a tradition, you take it even it's with all its, with everything. It's not something you, you emasculate. You don't cut bits off and, and uh, like this, this uh, image out here in the, the where the, that uh, crucifix, isn't it? Where they, there's no head, feet, arms, or genital organs. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a kind of maybe that's the Americanization of Christianity. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but the, uh, but the, they say the a tradition has a force to it uh, that it's like a a, a a pod or a shell in which the seeds are protected. It, it can carry, if, if there's no shell, no pod, then, then the seeds are scattered and lost. But when there is, then it, it, it is a protection for them. It's not, it's not what you eat or what nourishes you, but it definitely allows the, uh, the, to protect what is the essence, what is essential, what is truly nourishing. So the, the tradition uh, is, tradition means to hand down, it's something that comes down to us. So the Buddha established a tradition uh, 2,533 years ago, and this has been, and what we regard as that tradition was preserved within the, within the scriptures, the Tripitaka, and very much we try to live within the restraint of the discipline the Buddha established, the, the, the rules we keep and the, our way of life, say, as, as monks and as nuns, is very much uh, to live within the, the, the allowed relationships and the form that was established in what we call the Vinaya discipline.
that is a, that that holds it together. You find in a in our community in England, it holds together well uh, as a community because it, everybody in it agrees to live within the, within that restraint. It's not my idea. It's not Ajahn Sumedho's idea of what Buddhism should be, and it's not uh, it's not Ajahn Chah's Buddhism. It's it's what was established as best we know by the Lord Buddha himself. So, so we, so no matter if, even if we don't particularly see the value or appreciate the whole thing, at times we we still conform and live within that restraint. And by doing that, then we begin to understand the value of restraint and limitation, not as an oppression but as a way to compose and collect and not be scattered about, not be thrown about and all over the place. Because when you, when you stay in one place or when you uh, limit your, your abilities to certain things, uh, and so that what is essential for enlightenment is the main goal what, and, and the purpose of our life, then, then of course we... We don't create a lot of social problems uh, in in a community. We we accept the limits and the the relationships established. So then we can actually practice the Dhamma because we're not fighting and and vying with each other and 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 uh, revolting and rebelling and doing all these kind of activities. Uh, we're not we're not trying to seek each other out. We're not trying to form romantic attachments or emotional attachments to each other. Uh, the whole the purpose is to realize truth. So that is the, the the guiding star, the goal of our life. And and even though there are attractions and so forth as as a part of of living in a community, there's attractions and there's repulsions and. And the personality clashes and and so forth, just like anywhere else. But these are not really made into problems because the uh, if 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 they're wise, if the monks and nuns use wisdom, then they they more or less see it for what it is and don't create it into anything in, into any big thing. They learn how to to let go of of their conceit, their views, their desires, their opinions, uh, not by suppressing, but by reflecting and realizing the, the way of letting go and the way of non-attachment. Because the, the form, the limitation is, is a moral limitation. We have moral rights. Uh, we, there, in, in, there's been a lot of problems in in Buddhist communities and Buddhist groups, uh, um, just on the level of morality, where the teacher seems to have such power as to even, to to uh, say commit immoral acts towards the students, so so that this and students, people that have faith and believe in a teacher, will more or less do what the teacher wants, and so if the teacher is not morally based, then the students are, are exploited by that teacher or misused and abused by the teacher.
And that only leads to the problem of factions and mistrust and, and resentments and all the problems that come from, from that, that kind of behavior. Now in, in Sangha, uh, our, our commitment is, to, there's, there's no way, even the most senior, most important and respected monk, bhikkhu, can ask any one of the members of the community or the lay community to commit any kind of immoral act. And if, if we do, then, then it's your duty to refuse. Even though you might, you might think I'm, uh, you might admire me and respect me and think that I know everything, if I should suggest you do something against the moral precepts, then it's your duty to say, no, you are wrong. That's your, that's your moral right, is to, you have that, you need to know what your rights are as a Buddhist. And the rights are based on, on these moral precepts. And this is, this is to be really made very clear that, that uh, an enlightened master, uh, or whatever, whatever you think somebody is, uh, that has no right to ask anyone to, to break the precepts. And if he does, then, then the, your duty is to refuse. We can also admonish each other. Like, like if I start going off a bit, then it's Venerable Amaro's duty to admonish me. And then it's my duty to, to uh, obey and live under the restraint. The, the proper restraint of our discipline. So, I mean, it, so even though Venerable Amaro's junior monk, junior to me, it's his duty to help me if I start going off the track. <laughs> and vice versa, if he goes off the track, then it's my duty to help him, to admonish him. And so that this is, this is, this is a way of uh, this mutual admonishment helps us to be able to see ourselves. We need, we need that kind of feedback because sometimes in, when you're in a position uh, uh, as a teacher and you have an aura uh, of, of a kind of sanctity around you and you've been given permission and you, you've given some kind of transmission and you're, and you're considered a Dharma heir or you're considered uh, you know, the, the first disciple, Western disciple of Ajahn Chah, or, or people have all these, these high expectations of you, uh, if there's no proper admonishment available, if everybody goes along in the state of awe and, and adoration, then that person is not, uh, can really go off the track. Because uh, one one starts assuming and, and even and uh, that that you can do anything. The the law of feeling that an enlightened person can do anything. And there's a lot of feeling that an enlightened person can break all the moral laws and it's and it's just great fun, you know. Thumb your nose at at, at morality and uh, it just shows that you're not attached to it. 
and you're liberated from it. So that, and that appeals to, to many people because that's like uh, thumbing your nose at authority and making fun of, of the old kind of prudes and, and uh, straight-laced, uh, dreary types of people that purse their lips and go naughty and bad and immoral. <laughs> so we all, we all have a like to kind of make fun of the, of the uptight prude and, uh, and feel we, we aren't that way. Look at the way we can just flaunt the rules and, and we don't care. But that, isn't, that is a rebellion. That's still a very immature attitude, isn't it? it we went, went through that years ago where you, you wanted to break the rules and, and shock your parents and, and be daring and, and outrageous. But one doesn't want to live a life being outrageous, especially when you're 56 years old. <laughs> So the breathing the spirit into the form is 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 an act of love. It's not it's not a, a stupid conformity or fear of being punished for breaking rules. It's not blind attachment to moral precepts and and principles and and all that. It's I mean that that does that doesn't put life into the form. It makes it it makes the form uh, even even deader. I mean, just fear-conditioned creatures, uh, just obeying out of fear, uh, is is not a partic- is not an inspiring sight, and certainly doesn't it is, doesn't arouse any inspiration in in others. But the the ability to, when we love the form, when we put our heart into what we're doing, into the restraint, and and into the practice, then there is a Buddha rupa or a Buddha form. So the Buddha form is like this. You see, this is the Buddha form. The, the human form, isn't it? It's not, it's not a Martian, and it's not a Devadat, not an angel. Uh, it, even though the, the uh, flame from the head is merely symbolic, it doesn't, don't take it too literally. That's religious symbols are, uh, you know, can have, you can do that with religious symbols because they are symbolic. They don't have to be anatomically accurate. But notice the the presence of that form. This is a very beautiful Buddha Rupa. So the face is the face, if you look at Buddha Rupas, most all of them, their face has a serene look. The eyes are open; they're not shut, and they're they're uh, they're sitting straight and they're alert. And this one is the touching the earth mudra, like this. So this 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 particular mudra, the story behind that is that. Uh, 
before the Buddha was enlightened, he was, and he was uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree. And this is this is an allegory. I, sitting under the Bodhi tree, and then all the forces of Mara came to attack him. And uh, all these forces, like they, in in temples in Bangkok, some of the old temples have these beautiful murals in the in the temples of the forces of Mara attacking. Uh, the Buddha before his enlightenment. They're all coming at him in various forms of fearsome uh, expressions and dragons and, and most horrendous uh, things and tempting sights. All there to, to try to, to, uh, to uh, delude the, the Buddha. And he's sitting there, his eyes open, he's not, he's not, he's not frightened. He's, his eyes are open, he sees all this. And then these forms say, who do you think you are that you can sit under the Bodhi tree? Get out of there. You don't belong there. You're deluded. I'm going on like this. That's the, the place of enlightenment. The Bodhi tree is, is like the place of enlightenment or the axis mundi. It's the, it's the place of enlightenment. So the, so the Buddha, who wasn't quite yet the Buddha then, but just on the verge, Said, he touched the earth and he said, let the earth be my witness. So he touched the earth. Now the earth is a symbol is a, for the female and uh, mother earth. Uh, and, uh, and so this is like uh, he, before he could be enlightened, he had to get permission from mother. <laughs> In other words, the the, the female energy, the forces, had to, had to uh, approve that this wasn't just a presumptuous act, that this wasn't just an egotistical thing of some precocious little child that's acting badly. So, so it, was, it was the request, let the earth, let Mother Earth be my witness. So then Mother Earth came forth and with compassion she flooded, water is the, is the element of compassion, she flooded the forces of Mara and they all disappeared uh, from her hair. They have, they have, a, they have a, a monument in, uh, or a, a kind of shrine to Mother Earth or Nang Torani in Thai in Bangkok uh, near the uh, Sanam Luang in which the, this, there's this female figure with, with her hair and water is a fountain with water coming out of it. So that this, this, uh, the water's coming out of the hair, she's squeezing her hair. Then this, this, this flood floods away the forces of Mara, which is uh, Mother Earth saying, uh, he has the right to be where he is. He has the right to be enlightened. So then, uh, then uh, Siddhartha Gotama, the ascetic Gotama, uh, was left alone. Mara left, and and then he meditated, and uh, then then through his meditations, and through his understanding of the dependent origination, he realized the truth. 
So this is, this is like repelling the forces of Mara. Let the earth be my witness. So this, this symbol also means that like in our own, we have to come to terms with our earth body. We have to accept, we have to ask permission. And that means that we, we need to respect uh, just the, the, the body we have, the earthbound body, the earthbound state of our birth, before we can dare to be enlightened or assume that we can be enlightened. So it's not just the presumptuous kid saying, I want to be enlightened, and, and, and then trying to become enlightened out of a, a willful act, but it, it is a wise understanding of how things operate. So, say, in our earthbound state as human beings, we have to learn how to respect and keep our bodies within a restraint so that they're not being abused or misused or used for evil purposes or, or exploited by ourselves or others. And that's what morality is about, is the, the sila, is, is a way of respecting your, your body and mind. So with that basis of morality, then we have the right to be enlightened, because that's like the, the Mother Earth. Then, we're, then Mother Earth gives us the right to be enlightened. Now look how much we've, we have exploited, and just like the most dreadful, horrid kind of children abuse Mother Earth. This is the human population. We, we've just tried, to, just like you see, uh, like horrible little children, just constantly at their mothers, you know, not giving her a moment's rest until she's an absolute wreck. <laughs> and she, she's ready to have a nervous breakdown. And she can't because she's got to take care of these brats. <laughs> And so we, I think human beings are very much on that level right now. We're like brats, badly trained, uh, selfish, insensitive little kids that, that don't live in the right way, don't behave properly. And therefore we, we create confusion and we pollute and we, we make a mess of everything. And then we want we want somebody to come, we want Maitreya to come and save us. So this is, this is a very important reflection for you to consider the, the need to, to restrain action and speech within the moral limitation as a as in lay, lay people with the five precepts, is to 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 keep within those those limitations means that you are living in a way in which uh, enlightenment is possible for you. But until you do that, uh, you're you're like a presumptuous kid who's just trying to get enlightened as an act of will. No matter if any. Master has certified you as a Dharma heir, it doesn't matter. If you still uh, cannot restrain yourself within that limit, you're not worthy of sitting under the Bodhi tree. 
you're not worthy to sit in the, in the place of enlightenment. And so the forces of Mara destroy you. you, you have, Mother Earth will not rescue you, will not give you permission, so the forces of Mara will take you over. In a tradition, we we don't like the idea of British Buddhism or American Buddhism. All this is is another kind of conceit we have to transcend. We're not trying to to make Buddhism into something. We're trying that we want or something American, but we're learning how to live within the tradition of uh, that the Buddha left us, and not try to make it into something else. So when we talk about American Buddhism, it's it's really it's really not the right way to 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 talk. I mean, it's it's uh, as far as as if your really uh, aim is to be enlightened, we don't want to make it American. Americans need to learn how to live within the restraint of a tradition, not try to make a tradition into an American thing. And this I found very. Uh, helpful with me in my own experience and learning to conform and and contain myself within a tradition and and in an Asian country where I had to to uh, to really put forth that kind of effort to 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 restrain myself and live and adapt and conform but but not as a blind, stupid act, but as a way of training in which I could actually begin to see myself and my conceit and my fears and my desires. Because the, the, the limitation that of a tradition is, uh, is like a, 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 a mirror. We can, we can see ourselves because we're not acting from our own desires anymore, our own views. We're learning, we can see our views then when we're not following our own views and our own opinions. We can see our views as a, as a reflected object rather where if we just follow our views and opinions, we, we don't see them anymore because we're attached to them. So we need restraint, we need uh, limitation and forms in order to reflect. Because if we don't have any, if it's all based on high-minded ideas, uh, then we we end up with with no reflection. We're 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 like trying to start out from the top, which when we're not at the top, we're pretending. We're we're trying to get to the top uh, when we're still at the bottom, and no matter how hard we try to reach to the top. Uh, and get there, we can't because we don't know where we are yet. We have, we haven't accepted the limitation and the place we're in. We're aiming, we're we're trying to grasp the star rather than use it as a guide.
Now these are these are my reflections on tradition, which I'm presenting to you. I'm not trying to convince you of anything, because you're certainly free agents to to be whatever you want to be. But I, I oftentimes feel that that American especially is uh, because we tend to be anti-traditional. We're we're a country based on ideals rather than traditions. So we tend to suspect and even regard tradition as something wrong or something we don't want. But tradition is something that can be used. And it's a, it's a whole thing. We like breathing the life into the tradition. When you get good bhikkhus and good nuns, enlightened bhikkhus, enlightened nuns uh, in a community, then that whole tradition is 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 alive. It has a spirit to it. It has a radiance to it. Then you can say, "Oh, Buddhism is so <coughs> so alive." And but yet, if you see some monasteries that I've seen, <coughs> you would say, "Totally dead religion." Just like Christianity, you can go to some churches where. It's just dead, and other churches have a spirit to them because people are actually practicing, and uh, and they have that radiance that comes from the practice, from from right practice. Then after the Buddha's enlightenment, <coughs> he, um, excuse me, Brahma Sahampati said, "You must teach for the for the welfare of those with only little dust in your heart." Because after his enlightenment, he he thought, "What I've learned is so subtle." then I don't think anybody's going to understand it, so I won't teach. And then the Brahma Sahampati, which is like a symbol of the Divine Father, the Divine Forces, the, the, the Father, gave permission to teach, encouraged the Buddha to expound the Dhamma. So these forces of, of mother and father, these, we're, we're, these are symbols, don't take them literally, but this is very much the what the value of religious symbolism. It's the the relationship of male to female, and the and also the experiences we have within within our own spiritual life. So Mother Earth and the Divine Father uh, give birth to the Buddha. Or the the through that through that proper union, then the then there is the 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 universal the the arise the connection to universal intelligence because buddhi is the symbol for universal intelligence or intellect wisdom.
thought of my advice is not to wait for Maitreya Buddha. Or the return of the Christ. But to do it yourself. Don't wait. Don't, don't be... Uh, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Do it yourself. And this is when you think, has anyone else done it? That doesn't matter. You do it. And you say, well, I, I don't think I can do it if no one else has done it. And there you're stuck with the self-doubt again. So, you, you, you can ask yourself, well, what if nobody else has done it since Gautama the Buddha? Then, then uh, that still shouldn't, uh, because that still shouldn't uh, discourage you, because you can do it. So yes, how many enlightened beings are here, or how many arahants are there in the world? And, and is Ajahn Chah an arahant, or where, where, how, how evolved is the Ajahn Sumato, and all this kind of thing? You're, you're still look, waiting for the Maitreya, or you're asking somebody else, to be, to, 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 to enlighten you really. You want to see the proof before you'll, before you'll take the step. But uh, that's not really how it works. We, 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 we have, it's, a, it's an act of faith. And we, we, once we start, we just keep going. We, and, and no matter how many fall away and become disillusioned, it doesn't matter because we can still keep going. And I remember in Thailand years ago, and get all this news about these scandals in America and in Europe of, of uh, gurus uh, falling off their pedestals and roshis and all these this thing, and you'd, you'd get feeling quite uh, depressed by it because you'd you 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 kind of would feel uh, you know that before you were inspired by some of these people then they then they then they fell and they they seemed to uh, and, and and then everybody criticized them and then you your own doubts well you know nobody can do it i guess so then i asked myself now what if ajahn Chah suddenly announced to me said tomato buddhism is all a farce it's a big lie it's better to, to disrobe and get married and settle down, have a family. <laughs> what if the Dalai Lama suddenly eloped with a, with a film star? What if all our, all our heroes, all our great teachers and idols suddenly uh, just fell down and cracked and crashed and shattered, what would you do? Well, the right thing to do would be just keep going on. Don't let that, don't let that uh, cause you any problem. Because we, are we in it for, just because we, 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 uh, we're still very much, our, our, our spirit and inspiration is still dependent upon somebody else being something for us? Or have we matured to the level where we can be that ourselves? 
be that and be the knowing and see and realize truth and be free from delusion. And we can't, it's, it's, it's unfair to expect that from anyone else. I will not make that demand on anyone. I don't expect anybody in the world to do it or, or demand that, that I see somebody who's done it because I realize it's something I must do myself something that I can do. So then it's, this is what, how you, you know, help you to think about getting beyond the, the self-doubt where you're, because as a, as a personality, I, you know, I certainly went through very, a lot of doubts about, you know, felt very worthless and unable and, and inadequate and, uh, incapable of doing anything like that and not daring that, and who do you think you are that you think you could ever and and uh, Mara's come at you like that who do you think you are you, you know if, if so-and-so can't do it what makes you think you can do it and you who do you think you are Sumato you're overestimating yourself and all these nasty voices go on but don't believe them because they're it's uh, just the forces of Mara testing you out. Because the, this, this is uh, like the Buddha, let the earth be my witness. My, the, my restraint, my intention is completely mature now. I am ready for enlightenment. I'm ready and I, and I, uh, and I request permission for this from the mother that gave me birth, from the earth. And then the earth responded, said, yes, this, 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 this uh, Gotama has the right to be enlightened. And so that's the, the result of his moral restraint, his goodness, his generosity, his kindness, his development of virtue and goodness was was complete, and so his he was no longer say a will. It was it wasn't then a willful act or an overestimation. <clears throat> then after the tendency, after one has insights and understands dhamma, then the more and more we we, uh, we oftentimes don't feel like we. You know that we want to. We, there's a, uh, a strong interest in in uh, just living a peaceful life away from the from the uh, confusions and problems of the marketplace. But there's also the compassionate father, the kind father, who says teach for the welfare of those with only a little dust. There are, this, there are beings who are ready for the teaching. They only have a little dust in their eyes. So that the, the teaching is then, can be, uh, we, we're not becoming teachers or we're not trying to, to uh, you know, we're not, we're not becoming teachers out of 
an, an act of will out of some over, overestimation of ourselves, or I want to go tell you where it's at, and I want to be your teacher as a conceit. But it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's the willingness to, to share what one has learned from the practice of the Dhamma. Because one realizes that, that, it's, uh, of, that there are beings with only a little dust in their eyes and that will benefit from this teaching of the Dhamma. As disciples of the Buddha, then we, we, we have that right. When we, when we understand that those teachings, we have the right to teach them. And we have the, the uh, compassion uh, to, to try to make these teachings and available to people and give opportunities and occasions for people to practice. So we set up monasteries and, and little Buddhist groups and, and meditation groups and, and give retreats and give public talks and have summer work camp, summer children camps or family camps and all kinds of things uh, we have to, we get involved with. But it's, it's the willingness of people who have had insight into those teachings and appreciate that and want to share that and give the other people who don't, haven't heard yet those teachings an opportunity to hear them and to practice. And to encourage those beings to develop the, the foundation in which enlightenment is, is possible. And that foundation is in the development of virtue and restraint and morality in which we have the right to sit in the, in the spot of enlightenment, the center of the universe, the axis mundi, the, the boat under the Bodhi tree. So I offer this for your reflection and contemplation for this evening. <laughs>